I have one memory of, of Boo that I really think of every time I think of him, and I, I think of it a lot. The peace inside this kid was just unreal. We prayed, we shed tears for him. Everyone was a friend with Boo. Welcome to Kite Line, a weekly radio program from WFHB that focuses on issues in Indiana's prison system and beyond. I'm Emma Johnson. And I'm Mia Beach, and we're your hosts for this program. Behind the prison walls, a message is called a kite. Whispered words, a note passed hand to hand, a request submitted to the guards for medical care. Illicit or not, sending a kite means trusting that other people will bear it farther along until it reaches its destination. Here on KiteLine, we hope to share these words across the prison walls. Before we get started with this week's theme, we want to share some prison-related news. In El Salvador, women face jail time for having abortions or even miscarriages. One of these women was Manuela, a 33-year-old mother of two who was accused of having an abortion by the medical professionals treating her for severe complications she suffered during a miscarriage. She was charged with murder and sentenced to 30 years in prison where she died of advanced Hodgkin's disease less than a year after her miscarriage. Under El Salvador's extreme abortion laws, many Salvadoran women are treated as criminals. The laws prohibit abortion in all circumstances, even when a woman's life is at risk or in cases of rape. El Salvador will soon consider a bill that would partially lift the total ban on abortions. It would decriminalize abortion in four cases. To save the life of a pregnant woman, if the pregnancy is a result of sexual violence from human trafficking, if there is a fetal abnormality, and if pregnancy is a result of rape and abuse of a minor. Dearborn County, Indiana, is locking up more people than any other county in the country. The county has sentenced over 5,000 residents to prison terms, more than San Francisco, California, and Durham, North Carolina, combined. The small county also imposes sentences that are excessively long. One man who tried to sell 15 oxycodone pills to an undercover officer received a sentence of 16 years after a plea deal. In Cincinnati, 20 minutes east of Dearborn County, the maximum sentence the man would have received is six months. In large cities, he probably would have received probation or drug treatment. Dearborn County highlights an important change from a decade ago. Today, rural areas in the U.S. are more likely than urban ones to send people to prison. Residents of small counties with populations under 100,000 are 50% more likely to go to prison than those of more heavily populated areas. On May 25th, the American Civil Liberties Union filed a lawsuit against the Department of Homeland Security in an attempt to expose the poor treatment of hunger strikers in immigration and customs enforcement detention centers. Reports have surfaced of hunger strikers being force-fed and placed in solitary confinement. ICE has refused to turn over documents related to the hunger strikes, and the ACLU is hoping to uncover how widespread the abuse is. In recent weeks, hunger strikes have begun in Georgia, Oregon, and Washington state. The ACLU is trying to obtain a range of documents related to hunger strikes by people being detained in ICE facilities, from policies to records of specific incidents. The complaint notes that advocates for social change, including Mahatma Gandhi and Nelson Mandela, have long used hunger strikes as a form of nonviolent protest, and that the current immigrants' rights movement is no exception. The Milwaukee Journal Sentinel reported that on May 25th, a group of Wisconsin lawyers petitioned the state's Supreme Court to raise the pay for private criminal defense lawyers accepting indigent cases to $100 per hour. Currently, the state pays $40 an hour, barely enough to cover the overhead of their private practices, office space, insurance, staff, legal services, and so forth. The rate is one of the lowest in the country and is the same as that paid 25 years ago. The pay is so low that the state's most competent lawyers won't accept the cases. 
If the pay is raised to $100 an hour, the pay would be among the highest in the nation. The raise would cost some $34 million per year more and would cover the approximately 55,000 publicly appointed cases. For years, judges and lawyers have questioned whether Wisconsin's current rate violates defendants' constitutional right to have competent legal counsel. Fate Vincent Winslow, age 47, was convicted of making a $5 commission on $20 worth of marijuana that he sold to a plainclothes undercover police officer and was sentenced to life imprisonment at hard labor with no chance of parole. When the police officer asked Winslow why he agreed to deliver the marijuana, Winslow, who is African-American and was homeless at the time of his arrest, said that he wanted to buy food. This travesty of justice took place in Louisiana, which holds more prisoners than any other state in the Union. Winslow has said of his predicament, quote, Life for two bags of weed. People kill people and get five years. There is no life in prison, just living day by day, waiting to die in prison." Unquote. A concerned citizen named Corstian Vandevere has started a petition demanding that Louisiana Governor John Bell Edwards free Winslow. A link to the petition will be available on our website. This week is the first episode devoted to the memory of Clinton Gilkey, known by many as Boo. As June 7th marks the one-year anniversary of his unfortunate death in the Monroe County Jail, we want to share some more thoughts from people about the circumstances surrounding his death, as well as memories from his friends. Shortly after Boo's death, an anonymous written piece began circulating in the Bloomington area, containing both insights into Boo's situation and linking it to a larger systemic problem. The piece read, Clinton Boo Gilkey was held in the Moreau County Jail since he was 16 after a failed robbery using a toy gun. He was set to be released from jail in late June. After sitting for 22 months, he was finally being offered a plea deal for time served. He qualified for bail, just $1,000, the entire time he was imprisoned, but was too poor to get out. Even though Boo's death was quieter than that of Alton Sterling and Baton Rouge or Philando Castile outside St. Paul, who were both cut down by cops, it follows the same pattern, the premature death coldly dealt out to those who are poor and or black in this society, whether by bullet, coercion, or neglect. Because Boo's family was poor, he was considered indigent, which means the state would be forced to pay for his medication as long as he had no money on his books. When his family was able to put $10 a month on it, it was immediately taken by the jail to cover the cost of his medication. The only way Boo had enough money on his commissary to pay for necessary food that met his dietary restrictions and calorie needs was to refuse his medication. This means he was given the choice between access to food or access to medication. The immediate cause of death was an aortic aneurysm the result of the jail's failure to treat a pre-existing heart condition called Marfan syndrome, a genetic disorder. The jail was aware of Boo's diagnosis and family medical history. Medicine and routine tests can manage the condition, but the jail denied Boo access to these basic resources. When he died, the guards tried to claim it was an overdose and immediately isolated all of his blockmates, interrogating them and ransacking their dorm. Ex-prisoners who were released shortly after his death and other recent deaths reported that they were blamed, mistreated, and had no substantial support for trauma and loss. Counseling for survivors wasn't made available, even at their request. While jail staff targeted and attempted to incriminate Boo's blockmates, we know who the real killers are. The jail medical staff, the jail administration, and an institution that criminalizes race and poverty. Boo's premature death comes close on the heels of two suicides and countless suicide attempts in the jail over the last year and a half. 
These deaths have been under a new administration and jail-appointed medical provider. A suicide had not taken place in the jail for more than 30 years before this. A rise in jail overcrowding, minors tried and held as adults, incarceration for illness and poverty, and an increasing disregard for human life also mark an escalation beyond the last three already miserable decades of incarceration. The system assumes it can keep failing our communities. This assumption relies on our hopelessness and complacency. The people in charge know that many of us get angry when teenagers are left to rot and die inside wretched cells, but they think we'll stay quiet or take it out on each other. The rebels in Ferguson have demonstrated, though, that the only practical response is to find each other, combine our rage, and fight back against the enemy that cages or kills our friends, family, and loved ones. The legal system offers no protection to the poor, let alone to black teenagers. Our only protection, our best weapon is solidarity. What limits their violence and neglect is fear of our collective power. Now we share some memories about Boo from people who knew him, as well as their feelings about his death and his medical condition. I have one memory of of Boo that I really think of every time I think of him, and I I think of it a lot. So at some point, we had like a group, a community slam. So a slam is when everyone pitches food in together, and they make like a jail casserole, and then pretty much everyone just kind of like splits it up, and you're all kind of standing there eating together. So it's one of the only beautiful moments to me that happens when you're incarcerated because it's really the only sense of community because no one has to pitch things in. But, like, we had just had this community slam, and uh, we brought in, like, these tubs of Kool-Aid that they can buy on commissary, but I think we, like, gave them as bingo prizes or something. But Boo was sitting there. Boo just, like, loved this Kool-Aid and he would just eat this powder straight up like it was Pixie Sticks. And I just remember looking at him, and it just looked like he had lipstick on because he'd, been just, he'd just been eating this straight red powder. And then someone else gave him some, and he just kept eating it. And he was he just had this sugar high. And uh, I don't know, I, I just always think of Boo with those red lips. And um, even after uh, he passed, all the inmates, and it, it got it got impossible to do but all the inmates kept saying hey do you think we could bring some kool-aid in so we could do a little thing for (laughs) i mean i I think that was kind of their memory of them too i don't know to me that's kind of like being a kid again i mean just being able to enjoy just something sweet and just being able to let that thing take you out of the moment and uh that's just what i think of a lot In our class, we were split into groups of four or five people, and so Boo and I worked really closely in our group. He was very soft-spoken, so when he did say something, you were really excited to hear him speak because there were other people in our group that just rambled on and on and on, and so I tried to make space for Boo to speak, um, and he wasn't very excited about public speaking, and it, it all made him really nervous, but he said that he was a rapper, and... Uh, I tried to get him to share his rap with me, uh, but he said, you know, when the class ended, that if I came back in for Think Tank during the summer, that he would actually read some to me. Um, But then I never saw him again. Um, In our public oral communications class, we would work on different topics that seemed like 
we needed to bring light to. And our group was working with education in the system um, because that was what one of our group members was really excited about. And Boo didn't seem to really care. He was just excited to not be stuck in the dorm and talking to people. And um, and he had some really good opinions, but um, didn't always want to share them. Um, and so we would brainstorm, write speeches, and then share them. And there was even one day at the end of the semester when we did a kudos and we went around the circle and made sure that everyone had something said about them. And so I said something about Boo and he was like blushing and everything just because it's like, you put up with us. And we were like badgering you all the time to speak up and be in a good sport. And it was, um, it was fun. And I think that he was on the good side of most people, you know, he, everyone was a friend with Boo and like, you know, anybody who who like made jokes, like sometimes there'd be really harsh jokes that would be made, but all of the jokes made like around Boo were always really sweet and loving, you know, all of the people on the inside and the outside. So it, it was fun to see. He was, I mean, he was really, really tall, but he was like the little young person that everyone was taking care of, you know, <laughs> so... And it's funny, like, while I'm talking about Boo, I can see his little hair flip because he had dreads that would, like, hang into his face. And, like, throughout an hour, he would just do that ten times. And I can just I can just see that right now. I remember when... We had some downtime during the class. He was talking about how since he had been in for months or however long it had been, um, he'd been wearing the same pair of contacts. And he had tried to get his mom to bring some in, but the guards wouldn't let them come in because they had been opened and one of the contacts had been taken out of the box. And they also wouldn't let him get a new prescription and see an eye doctor. So he was wearing those day in, day out. And I didn't know about his heart condition, but maybe that was part of the reason he was so quiet and slow and reserved. Um, But it was it was a shock to hear that he was gone. I, I remember that he was in on some small charge. It seemed nominal. I don't remember the specifics because we weren't supposed to talk about them. But it was really surprising to me that they were holding him there for so long and making him wait when he should be in high school, that he was like 17 and had one little thing and it should have just been a slap on the wrist or whatever. But, you know, there's tons of people out that never got caught for doing exactly the same thing he did. And he was just in the wrong place at the wrong time and it it ended his life. All around, even before the problems with his heart, he still wasn't being taken care of. Like his health concerns were of no interest to the system and they could care less. And so it's just like unfortunate that it happened in all of these ways. I mean, unfortunate is like, I don't know, a forgiving term and I don't agree with that, but is <laughs> uh, definitely sick. I wanted to do something about it whenever it first happened because I'm going into the health field and that is, feels really important that there's no health care in there for people who have all of their rights taken away and they're no longer human. So maybe I'll figure out a way to push some buttons and put pressure where it needs to be so people can get taken care of.
And then also like using his story as a way to enlighten other people as to the system on the inside. There's been multiple times where I'm like, hey, you know this 17-year-old that died in jail because he couldn't get health care and he didn't need to be in there? Yeah, that's a thing. Right down the street. One thing that like you never hear talked about when you're when you're when you're dealing with incarceration, unless you're talking to the people who are in there, is the difference between jail and and prison. I kind of wonder if this happens if Boo goes to prison, if Boo's in prison, if he gets better health care. Like in jail, your movement is so limited. You're forced to choose between like commissary or medical attention. I mean, there's there's a difference between the way stuff is handled in jail and, and in prisons. And Boo was sitting in jail for over two years, I think, for an armed robbery case that was allegedly done with a, with a BB gun. So, I mean, there's a suppression of information either way. But from the jail's perspective, I get it. They walk by and they just look at guys like not really doing anything all day when in their minds they should be doing this rigorous programming but, like, a lot of the people were in the waiting room jail. They were waiting for sentences just like Boo was. And it's kind of hard to, like, progress yourself when you're waiting for sentencing because you don't know if you're going to be out in six months or if you're going to be in prison for five years. Just the system itself plays this mind game. And it's supposed to be for punitive justice. But playing this mind game is forcing people into these these boxes which is the jail where they can't grow until they figure out what the next step in their life is, whether it's freedom or prison. It's kind of hard to teach preventative strategies in the air dorm for recidivism when someone doesn't know if they're going to be out on the streets or not. Like they, they literally, until their final court date, after they've sat in jail for six months to a year, their final pretrial, they figure out if they're going to, go to prison or be free and then you have to start making plans around that and it's a really fast process after then the problem is starting a recovery program to someone who's going to go to prison for any time from one year to five years we can't discuss recidivism benefits based off of that because after they leave us they go to prison again most of the time or sometimes they get out but it's it's just kind of this big toss-up I think that this is a huge thing in Boo's case specifically. Once it gets into the prison system and the state has to pay for it, it's better than it is in jail. Um, I don't understand why. There's not a lot of information except for, like, other news issues of wrongful deaths in other jails and prisons. But really letting people know the difference between jail and prison, because Boo was not convicted. Boo was innocent, technically, you know. He was innocent and in jail waiting for a good 22 months, whereas if they just ship him up the river, which isn't what we want either, but if they do, I mean, his death might be avoided because when he goes to RDC, and I've, I've never been to prison and went through RDC, but everyone says you go through an extensive health evaluation when you get to RDC. RDC is essentially the next step before prison. So you go to jail, you sit in jail, and you wait for your sentence. When you figure out the outcome of your case, they send you to RDC, and then they do medical evaluations, and then you go from RDC to a prison. Someone sitting in jail like Boo for, I think it was it 22 months, 
they're just essentially sitting in a waiting room without without medical attention the whole time. Um, it costs $10 to go get a Band-Aid. And if you barely ever get commissary, if you barely ever get money on your commissary and you get to choose between going to the doctor and paying $10 or having time on the phone or honey buns and Kool-Aid, I mean, things that make you feel good in the moment, it's it's kind of hard, especially at 19 before your brain is is done fully developing before your prefrontal cortex is fully developing and, and you can't really see how those decisions are going to affect you in the long run. I mean, it's, you're, you're putting someone into a bad choice by keeping them in jail that long. And if you, if you look at income, if you look in the jail, most of the people are lower socioeconomic because if you've got money, you bond out or you, you get a lawyer that helps you get your bond lowered so you can get out. Even had the medical system done what they were supposed to. I don't think it's right for someone to sit in jail for 22 months because they're poor when they're not yet guilty. If you've got money, you can fight for your innocence on the outside. If you don't, you're kind of stuck on the inside. It's ridiculous that anyone would ever have to choose between commissary or like talking to their loved ones and medical attention. I can't speak for Boo or how much money he was getting, but from talking to the guys in the dorm, like, during the aftermath, it kind of became evident that, like, Boo was kind of private about about his health stuff. They posed it as he never went to the doctor and he never requested to do any of the stuff because when you're in jail, if you don't have any money in your commissary, you're considered indigent. So if you're indigent and you go get a haircut, then it's going to put negative – it costs $10 for a haircut – so if you're indigent and you go get a haircut, they put negative $10 against your account. So that way, if your mom comes and puts $20 on your books, they take the 10 out for the haircut. The same thing works with the medical situation in jail. Like, if you want to go to the doctor for anything, it costs $10. There's been, like, some speculation that Fu was being forced kind of into this, like, uncomfortable situation of barely having money on his books so not wanting to take those doctor's trips, that way when he got money on his books, he could use it for things that he wanted. But we have to remember Boo was incarcerated at 17, and, I mean, he sat in there for 22 months. It's a completely different decision process when you're 18 and, and you feel invincible. Someone who was in the jail with Boo sent us the following information that he wanted us to share. He writes, Clinton Boo Gilkey had a pre-existing condition when he entered the Monroe County Jail, of which the county had knowledge, according to Swain's statement. This condition was Marfan syndrome, for which he was not receiving treatment from the jail's medical staff. Gilkey passed out the year before, and while jail staff knew that, he received no treatment for the episode. People with Marfan syndrome are usually tall and thin with disproportionately long arms, legs, fingers, and toes. The damage caused by Marfan syndrome can be mild or severe. If your aorta, the large blood vessel that carries blood from your heart to the rest of your body, is affected, the condition can become life-threatening. 
Treatment usually includes medications to keep your blood pressure low to reduce the strain on your aorta. Regular monitoring to check for damage progression is vital. Many people with Marfan syndrome eventually require preventative surgery to repair the aorta. Untreated, Marfan syndrome causes aortic aneurysms. Every person with Marfan syndrome should have at least a yearly echocardiogram to check the size and function of the heart and aorta. Surgical repair of the aorta may eventually become necessary if the aorta has severely widened or developed a tear. Gilkey was incarcerated for 22 months and never had an examination. When members of the Addicts and Recovery Dorm, or AIR, informed the jail's medical staff that Clinton had Marfan syndrome, the nurse first mistook the disease for a drug. Then she said, Marfan syndrome, I've never heard of that before. When AIR Dorm members discovered Clinton's body and informed authorities, the 10 people were placed outside for 10 hours. After detectives interviewed each person, they placed the 10 individuals shoulder to shoulder in a 3x5 interview room for almost two hours. The individual who initially found the body was locked down in an isolation cell. His mother was called at 1 a.m. and informed that her son was involved in another inmate's drug overdose and was facing charges. The individual was underage and his mother refused to allow detectives to interview him. He was then detained for 24 hours in segregation, forced to be alone after finding a close friend dead on the bathroom floor. His only pleas were, what happened to Boo, and please let me be with my people, a plea for people with whom he could grieve. Even after the autopsy exonerated him of a crime, guards still waited hours to put him back into the community. Air dorm members returned to find their home ransacked. One of the inmates said it looked like, quote, a tornado had run through a trailer park, unquote. Guards did a shakedown, which means they searched every nook and cranny for contraband. But rather than doing so in an orderly fashion, the guards dumped the inmates' possessions on the floor maliciously, including personal effects, letters, books, clothing, food items, etc. Amongst the mess, the guards left Clinton's shoes in the bathroom hallway. Guards took one inmate's mat because, quote, it shouldn't be down there, unquote. When asked what the inmate was supposed to sleep on, the female guard replied, quote, take his, unquote, pointing to Clinton's mat, who hours before had died in the shower. Over one week after Clinton's death, neither the chaplain nor the jail psychologist had offered the air dorm any type of grief counseling. Over 48 hours after Clinton's death, the guards who accused the air dorm members of being involved with their friend's death had not apologized or offered any sort of condolences for insensitive treatment, invalid assumptions, nor for trashing everyone's home. Many air dorm members have spent over a year eating, sleeping, watching television, playing card games, discussing recovery strategies, and sharing heart-to-hearts about family, friends, childhood trauma, future hopes, and aspirations with Clinton. Air dorm members were forced to treat this as though nothing had happened. The sheriff's office treated it as though it could not have been prevented and it was nobody's fault. The jail medical staff is not held accountable for lack of proper treatment for a known pre-existing medical condition. Inmates are held accountable for neglect and bad behavior, but county officials and medical staff are not investigated or held accountable for neglect. County officials control information released from within the jail. By censoring mail and monitoring communication, jail officials are the only individuals who can make official statements on events that occur in the jail, events in which they should be investigated for neglect or misconduct. The county jail and the medical staff are funded by taxes, but their practices are not transparent. Inmates must choose between commissary items, communication with loved ones, and proper medical care. While the Department of Corrections is required to run medical tests and provide treatment for inmates convicted of crimes, the county jail is not required to do so because county jails are intended for short-term stays. Clinton had been incarcerated for 22 months awaiting trial as an adult for armed robbery that occurred when he was underage. Clinton was accused of attempting an armed robbery with a BB gun. Clinton spent the last 22 months of his 19-year life incarcerated because he could not afford to bond out. 
When an inmate enters the Department of Corrections, they are given a full medical examination and treated for illness. While the county jail can hold individuals pretrial for indeterminate periods of time, the jail is not required to test or treat individuals for certain illnesses. The jail no longer allows Positive Link to perform AIDS or HIV and hepatitis C testing, even though the tests are free and promote early detection and treatment of these life-threatening illnesses. Inmates in county jails, like Clinton, are often incarcerated before trial and without being proven guilty for two years without access to vital, life-saving treatment. Like, he finally had gotten around to where he was going to be going home and with his mom, and his brother had just gotten out of juvenile detention and everything. I mean, it was just so, like, it was just like, why? Next week, we'll devote a full episode to more first-hand memories of Boo from people who knew him. If you have a memory or story you want to share with us, please email us at kiteline at wfhb.org or find us on Facebook. We'd love to share more stories of Boo with the larger community. Please listen again next week, and thanks to everyone who contributed to the show. This has been KiteLine. Anyone affected by the prison system in any form is welcome to write us via our P.O. Box, KiteLine Radio, P.O. Box 2422, Bloomington, Indiana, 47402. KiteLine wants your feedback. You can reach us via email at kitelineradio at gmail.com or find us on Facebook. You can hear previous episodes of our show or get more information on the prisoners or stories covered on KiteLine at our website, kiteline.radio.noblogs.org. You can also find our podcast on iTunes. KiteLine is intended as a means of communication between people across prison walls. We are not responsible for all views expressed on the program. WFHB, its contributors, or any affiliates airing this program are not responsible for the views expressed on the show. This has been KiteLine. Join us every Friday at 5.30 p.m. for more stories, news, and insights about the impact of prison on our communities. Thank you for listening.